once again to the Real Emergency Vodcast and happy EMS week. It's EMS week 2021. We are so excited to have all of you here today to celebrate all the incredible work that we do as EMS providers. And a special mention, of course, today is EMS for Children Day. If you're at your department as the Pediatric Emergency Care Coordinator, the PEC for EMSC, a special shout out to you for taking care of our kids we're so proud to bring you the finest in pediatric emergency medicine education in today's episode. And we know that you're going to walk away today with the knowledge you need to provide the very best care for our pediatric patients. So this is the second episode in our series produced in partnership with Hantevi, RealDX, 410 Medical, and powered by Prodigy EMS. I'm Hillary Gates. I'm the Director of Educational Strategy for uh, Prodigy EMS. And all of these episodes will be available to you on Prodigy EMS for CE credit. Today, at the end of the episode, will be a QR code on your screen that you can scan with your phone camera. It'll direct you to Prodigy EMS's site for you to claim your CE for today. You can check us out on your favorite podcast platform. We're on all of those. We have a Real Emergency YouTube channel that you can watch the video again at your heart's content. And don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So let's get started. The three physicians you see sitting here today, Mark Peel, Peter Antevi, and David Spiro, are all leaders in the pediatric emergency medicine field. And they cover the spectrum of care from out-of-hospital EMS to ED and in the hospital and to the ICU. But most importantly, these guys are educators at heart, and their number one goal is to educate healthcare providers in order to improve all patient outcomes. As we add to this series and give you more episodes, know that their focus is always going to be using real live video scenarios and bringing you innovation and most importantly, solid evidence uh, for the best patient care. So let me introduce these guys. David Spiro is a pediatric emergency physician and professor at the University of Arkansas Medical System. He felt so strongly about authentic education that he found a way, and you know this is not easy, to get videos to the market of real live patient cases, and he founded uh, Real DX. Mark Peel is a pediatric intensivist at WakeMed in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he served as the medical director of the WakeMed Children's Hospital, the director of pediatrics at WakeMed Physician Practices from 2009 to 2015, and he is a medical director with WakeMed Mobile Critical Care. Dr. Peel has faculty appointments in the departments of pediatrics at the University of North Carolina, and he teaches pediatric emergency and critical care skills to learners at all levels. He's also the co-founder and chief medical officer of 410 Medical Innovation, a company that's focused on improving resuscitation and shock and sepsis. Finally, Peter Antetti... Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician and EMS physician and founder of Pediatric Emergency Standards and is the inventor of the Hantevi system. He serves as the medical director for numerous agencies in Florida. And Dr. Antevi is the lead pediatric EMS specialist for the highly influential Eagles group. Coming up next month, hope to see you all in Hollywood, Florida. All right, so some tips for watching today. We want you to weigh in with your voice. Please use the raise your hand feature or be ready for us to ask you to speak so we can have a nice interactive discussion. Uh, you can use your mic to chime in or write questions in the chat if you're feeling shy. Uh, folks, you're about to watch EMS captured video of a 19 month old with altered mental status. This is a high stakes call. Think about how you treat this patient and get ready to chime in with your ideas. Over to you, David. 
Hey, thanks, Hillary. I just want to say I'm honored to be with Peter and Mark. Y'all are great. Happy EMSC week. And I am incredibly delighted to uh, present some of this case today. It's, uh, it's just an honor to be here. Peter? I'll tell you what, I am I'm as, I'm maybe more excited. This is, I know, a video that you've helped us put together, uh, David, with what you've done in the past. And um, I'm as excited. And I really want to thank, again, everybody for being on today and for caring about kids, especially on EMS for Children's Day. So, Mark, over to you, my friend. Yep, thrilled to be here too. I want to say I'm not. I don't. I'm not in the proper studio, and I may have to move. I'm at a urban search and rescue course in Central Florida, and uh, had to pop into a to a temporary space here. So, if you guys see me move, just have patience, and I'll be back with you in a sec. Okay. You got it, pal. Mark, it looks like you're in an elementary school. So, <laughs> this is, this is. is the Florida State Fire College, so it's about the same. Good. Hey guys, I'm gonna have to move, so I'll I'll, I'll join back up in a sec. All right, well, let's get let's get into it. And uh, one thing is that all these patients uh, on our site and that we're gonna be see have been uh, consented. Uh, if it's a child, it's parental consent, uh, and they've waived their rights. And uh, I always say this: it's just an honor to be able to present a case of a family that's willing to share a vulnerable moment uh, that they that they experienced. And um, these patients have waived their uh, protected uh, uh, health rights because you are obviously are seeing the real patient, but the benefit is amazing. And we're gonna be experiencing that benefit today by learning from uh, this particular child and the mother and, and what actually happened. And this will only work uh, really well if we are interactive. So please chat. Uh, please engage with us. Please let us know. Uh, I, I think I'm here today with Mark and Peter to not only teach, but to learn. And uh, I think we're all doing this because we're all uh, uh, ongoing and active learners. And uh, this is an experience for us to learn from you. Uh, I am not a paramedic. I used to be. Uh, that's how I started my career and then went into medical school. And um, I engage with EMS professionals every day. And frankly, you all are my heroes. So welcome to EMSC Day. And um, uh, please, we, we, we wanna make this uh, interactive. So let me get to the case. Okay, hold on a second. Great. David, you wanna make it full screen? Yep. And, and the medics again were called to a mall uh, and um, the child was found in a closet in the corner of a mall again highlighting the crazy places that you all go to find uh, kids and patients and some of the challenges that you face when you're initially assessing a scene. What's going on? Are you still seasoned? Okay. We've, we're five seconds now into seeing this case. Sick or not sick? Anyone? Five to ten hey. seconds. You walk into a, into a room. If you're a physician, you're walking into an exam room. You're walking into a scene. Sick or not sick? Clearly sick. Sick. 
Now, I think it's what he's doing, but I think. Okay, what time did this start? Um, I don't know. It happened like. Um, what time is it now? I don't know. Okay, why is he sick? Nineteen-month-old male. Why is he sick? Anyone? Could be metabolic. Could be ingestion. Yeah, but why is he sick? You're telling me about unresponsive. He's unresponsive. He's yeah. a toddler. He's just sitting there, just lying down. No eye contact. No eye contact. Right. He could be. He could be asleep. Um, great responses from some folks on the chat. So if you want to speak up, great. You want to chat, great. But I'm loving these responses. Um, are you anxious? Let's keep going. Um, I noticed it, and I don't know how long it was going on. I don't know how. Twenty-five after. So I think it was two, probably two fifteen, ten, two fifteen. Okay, so I am. So full, full body shaking. Yes. Um. Yes. This is, will be his third. Is he taking medications? Um. No. And I knew that his fever was getting up there, and I was trying to get all right we're 30 40 seconds into this case you know um these are real patient cases they're not scripted this isn't a simulation and uh our case contributors are practicing standard of care but you know we're also open and want to be sensitive we're in a safe space like in a simulation uh we're also open to comment and uh give constructive feedback of what could be done better uh, as a PZM physician, there's a part of this that makes me feel uncomfortable. We just watched 30 seconds of them encountering this child. What makes you feel uncomfortable and what are, um, what would make you feel uncomfortable or what, what are opportunities for improvement just in this sort of general uh, appearance, first 30, 40 seconds? I would have seen uh, Donna. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Robert. Oh, hi, Dr. Antebi. Um, yeah, my, I would have felt more if I was there is immediately rotating the child on his back and assessing for ventilations, basics, opening the airway and taking that blanket off um, right off the bat. And then, you know, um, again, assisting ventilations, you know, as soon as we got there, that would have been my thought. I, I think that's great. Peter, Mark, what are your thoughts? I agree exactly with what he's saying. You want to have a, a, a quicker assessment, global assessment than we're getting so far. We yeah, did learn so, a little history. We did learn a little history from mom. This has happened before, right? So we could at least we're led down the path that this is maybe another seizure, but I think you do need to begin assessing respirations, perfusion, mental status pretty quick. You know, you know, I, I tell you what, for me, it, it brings up a lot of memories um, where we have had patients come into our waiting room with a blanket being held by mom and people pass and pass and pass. And they're like, you know, 15th in and no one is evaluating the child. Lo and behold, you come and you pull the, 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 the blanket back and the kid's dead uh, because it was, a, it was a, you know, a patient not from this country. Culturally, they just are told to, to stay there. My question to everybody on, on, in here is, the mother said the kid had a fever she put a she put a blanket over him. She's clearly familiar with 
him seizing in the past, but she does sound to me a little nervous, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question for everybody is, what is the proper way to come into a situation where it's a small environment, there's people on the ground already, and you want to come in with the confidence without kind of coming in with this big bluster. Um, and I think that there's a way to kind of thread that needle. And I'm curious to see how people do that. And David and Mark, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's hard. I mean, first of all, again, respect, massive respect to coming into uh, unknown space and time and figuring things out. Uh, I think I'm seeing amazing, by the way, interactivity. I love this uh, interaction today. Uh, and, and, and folks are right, you know, they, many folks have responded that they're uncomfortable and they want to figure out, is this child breathing? And one of the one of the mistakes some of the learners I work with is they don't uh, take off the shirt. You're not actually having a visual exam of that respiratory effort, which makes you know the child's alive. Uh, it's one sign that uh, you can actually visually see that there's uh, a movement of life. Uh, and we have a shirt on, and we have a blanket, and and that that was a significant issue. And uh, Mark, thoughts. Yeah, just I'm sure there's discomfort here. This is a, a, a difficult environment with an unknown uh, injury or illness in a kid. And so definitely understand some of the hesitation. But I, I, I love what one of, the, one of the responses said. Partners should talk to mom, calm her, get history while lead tech assesses. That's probably that simultaneous history yes. and exam of the kid rolling him over, looking at the breathing and the skin color and the mental status, I think would be the best approach that I'd like to see. Yeah, I, I would like to play a little more video, but I, I also want people to pay attention to the tone of the mother's voice. Uh, again, mm -hmm. anxious. Uh, we, we, we are, we are uh, looking at the child, but we're also engaging with the mother and assessing the mother's engagement with the child. Uh, and uh, I pay attention to parents. I particularly pay, pay attention to their emotional state. Sometimes it doesn't help me, but sometimes it does. And when parents are anxious, I want to pay attention to that. Uh, so let's play this. David, David, yeah. I, I, have a, I have a quick, quick thought on that because I love that comment is that when there's an incompatibility, when the mother is anxious and the kid looks well versus the kid looks unwell and the mother does not look anxious. Those are the interesting points for me that I, you know, maybe sometimes tend to make mistakes on when the kid looks sick and the mom is nervous it kind of everything goes along with it. But afterwards, I'd be interested to hear about how people deal with when the opposite is true. So just a thought. Great. Again, pay attention to the mother's voice. Just pay attention to it. There you go. Thank you. I, I knew that it was the morning, so I gave him Tylenol. Oh. And then I, oh. gave, I just gave him, gave him, gave him, gave him, uh, Let's work oh, on IV stuff. Oh, do we still know if he's actually breathing or what his respiratory rate is? I don't think so. Right at this no, moment, but, but his pain. What we just what we just heard was the first thing that I just heard is let's work on the IV stuff. Did you guys hear that? And you know, I mean, I, I'd, I'd rather kind of go go from the top and come down. But ABC, go ahead. One teaspoon. Although to be fair you can be doing things at the same time. Yes, but, yes. You know, yes. Who's seen and who's supporting you. There can be multiple things happening at the same time, to be fair. Yeah. 
Agreed. Uh, Tylenol or ibuprofen. I think it was ibuprofen. Does he have a temperature yesterday? Can I get a uh, pee breather sick. too? So, uh, My kiddo. What's his name? Take his temperature Tylenol. prior to giving him the Tylenol today? No. Okay, so we're not 100% sure what his temperature was. Right. So we're seeing... But the doctor, his hands aren't cramped right now. To just, that I didn't need to call my... So we're clearly seeing some spontaneous movement. Can people agree? Signs of life, we're seeing some spontaneous movement, but what do you think about like, let's just like quickly do a quick, you know, we're doing, let's say we've done our ABCs. What is this kid's neurologic status? It, what's his tone like? He's a, if he's supposedly a healthy 19 month old male, what is the tone like here of his body and, and the body position? You know, it's what's interesting is I see kids, uh, I'm sure you all do. Um, by the way, thank you all for joining. Uh, for those of you that are joining late, we're watching a real patient video case. Um, I, uh, I like to walk children when they can walk. I like to see them in, and try to make them as comfortable as possible. That's a great way to assess someone's neurologic status if you or, or guarding if you're worried about appendicitis, et cetera. But what is this child's tone like? What are you all thinking? And, and so I see poor tone and Ashley said floppy fish. I don't, I wouldn't, I don't, wouldn't call him floppy actually. I would consider a different word for that. Let's, let's continue to watch his tone. It's subtle. And when one, unless it was lasting more than five minutes or that he passed okay. out and then surely lasted more than five minutes. Okay. That's why. Okay. But he didn't ever pass out. No. For sure he's still seasoned, so let's get He's always been seasoned. Yeah. Okay. All right, kiddo. I've really tried really hard. Okay, so so the paramedic on the scene said that he thought this child was seizing. Peter, Mark, folks, Ashley, Travis. You can speak up as well. I'm happy to pop in your mic and chat. Is yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start. I'll, I'll take a stab at this only because I, I think that um, people, people need to understand that seizures kind of have a, their, their life cycle, how they start, the type of seizure that it is. Um, not all seizures are created equally, um, and then. We often don't times in EMS see the initial seizure itself. And so you're getting the story from the mom that he was seizing. Um, I still haven't heard exactly the type of seizure he was having, whether it was tonic clonic or what have you. Um, and then, but almost always, and maybe not all the time when we get there, the child is now in another phase. What do you mean by tonic clonic? Because uh, ah. I see tonic clonic activity, but what do you mean by tonic clonic seizure? Okay, well, there, you know, when, when, when a kid is having kind of the, when, when, when I say tonic-clonic, I, uh, it's, it's a, a generalized seizure. It's not like just of one arm or one leg. It's essentially a global seizure where the child is basically having this move, uh, muscular movement of the arms and legs back and forth. Um, oftentimes their eyes and their gaze is completely up or off to a side. Um, and they're really not with the program. So a generalized seizure, uh, tonic-clonic seizure, I would describe and characterize very uniquely uh, and different than someone who's having, um, you know, a seizure that's not generalized, um, you know, in nature. So Mark, what do you think? 
Well, I want to ask you, Peter, what did you mean? Explain, is there anchoring going on here? Uh, that was my yes. thought too. An anchoring yes. error. An anchoring error. It, it, right. So anchoring is what I, I, I have to force myself not to do because as many people know, uh, when even, even in EMS, like when you're, when you get the call from dispatch and, and someone says they're calling for a finger injury and you get there and you see a, and, and you see the finger injury, but forgot to ask the kid that he just passed out. And by the way, his blood sugar is 24. Okay. Um, you should never anchor on what the people are telling you because it could be something completely different. So the mom kept saying seizure, seizure, seizure. And now we're all anchoring on this term of seizure, which, which is likely. Okay. I get it. Right. But I want to make, make sure that we kind of make our differential. We widen our differential always to make sure we're not missing something else. Yeah. That, that was my, if you guys can hear me. Okay. Still, that was my point is we can, we can get fixed on what someone else hands us or tells us. She's probably right. But be cautious about that. About uh, I, I haven't used that term anchoring, Peter, but I, I like it. So you can get led hey, down Cox, the wrong path. Keep an open mind. Yep. I got um, Morgan here is going to talk about what she wrote. He, she, sorry, Morgan. Um, <laughs> she, she, hi. Um, about looking at the eyes, because let's look at the yes. assessment here. Go ahead. Yep. Morgan. Yeah. I, I, in my time working in the emergency department, I would see a, a lot of my colleagues come in with EMS with seizure children they would claim it to be post or, you know, post-seizure. And uh, oftentimes you saw these small rhythmic motions of a hand or a foot. Uh, but I, a yeah. lot of times I saw it in the eyes, either deviated or this very, very subtle kind of twitching of the eye back and forth um, that was an indication that the child was still actively seizing. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want the parent, I also want folks to know that one of the challenges of this case that I'm already having is, is this child actively seizing or if it is a seizure or is this child actually in a postictal state? Because sometimes right. you can have tonicity or hypotonicity uh, and be in a postictal state and you actually don't know. And there are times that, that no one, even the most seasoned yep. pediatric neurologist at Harvard uh, would not <laughs> be like my Boston accent. I love the accent. But but um, you're, you're close with the accent. You got to work on that. Go Red Sox. Talk to, go we'll Red talk Sox. later. Good. Right. Go Red Sox. But uh, but seriously, like I, I think that uh, many times you, the only way to discern is actually hooking this child up to uh, an EEG machine, which Mark does uh, in his environment in the critical care. He's lucky. Very few pediatric ERs have EEGs, and we're not yet in 2040 where paramedics have EEG monitoring in the rigs, although that may happen at some point. So um, Peter, Mark, how do you discern between uh, a patient that's actively seizing and in a postictal state? Because if they're in postictal state, you may think about things differently than yeah. actively seizing. So if he's still tight, which it looks like he is, I'm thinking he's still seizing. I love the folks who've talked about eye deviations. I'm immediately looking at eyes. You can often see a twitching or a deviation there that heralds a seizure sometimes dilated pupils and then tachycardia. Joshua also mentioned, awesome. Is it kid tachycardic, stiff and have beating or, or um, nystagmus or the eye deviation is my first go to, or my first go-to's. Number two, someone said, always listen to mom. And my next question will be, mom, is this how the previous seizures looked? And if she says, yes, exactly. Then I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna let myself be anchored at that point. Okay, I feel better. This is what he's done before. 
If not, there's something else going on. So those would be my initial assessment points. And I want to mention that this is a teaching point I make to all early learners, and I know most of the people here, again, those of you joining, happy EMSC day. There, there are multiple reasons for tachycardia. And I have noticed as well, Mark, uh, in my clinical career, that tachycardia can be a sign of seizure. But just to be clear, it's a nonspecific sign. And in this particular child, you'll find out that this child had a fever. Uh, so as we know, uh, tachycardia can be caused by lots of different things. And, and in children, the two most common reasons for tachycardia are fever usually and, and uh, an emotional state, anxiety, crying, whatever. I mean, vital signs can be abnormal because the child is sitting there crying. They could be hypertensive and tachycardic. Uh, so again, uh, uh, but these are all clues. You know, Mark mentioned clues to try to put it all together and not just look at the tachycardia in isolation. Peter? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I like, I love Mark's, you know, kind of the, the trifecta of the eyes, the muscles, and then the, the heart rate. For me, and I, and I agree with you, David, is that if a heart rate is normal, I'm feeling a whole lot better. If the kid's tachycardic, I'm thinking seizure as well, but it, I mean, it, it really helps me if the heart rate is normal, I'm thinking to myself, okay, that, that brings seizure one step down uh, um, you know, in my assessment, because you have to remember that, as you said, David, it's very hard, very hard to tell if someone's having a subclinical seizure, AKA, subclinical, it's not clinically apparent. And I think that many people are worried to give a, a, an anticonvulsant, the benzodiazepine to a child who they're not sure if they're still seizing or not. So you have to be kind of very, uh, your assessment skills here have to be really sharp, especially if you're about to give a kid something that potentially could reduce their respiratory rate. So um, I think this is really the finesse but the assessment here is the key. Can I ask a, a question for the panel? This is Rob. I'm from uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts. Hey, Rob. All right. So, uh, um, if you're if the paramedic is on the fence, quote unquote, uh, even after a detailed assessment on whether the child is still actively seizing or not, and with young peds, especially as you know, you well point out, it's it can be very difficult to, to make that determination. My feeling would be if you're on the fence, then you go ahead and give the benzo. Um, intranasal, you know, speed. My understanding is if there's are seizing, you want to break the seizure as soon as possible right. and speed, 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 get the benzo, intranasal on board. Um, what's your feeling on, on that? Can I, can I answer? I think it's the confirmatory test. Yeah, sometimes I think, right? I, I, it's confirmatory. It's both di exactly. Uh, Mark, I was saying the same thing. It's both confirmatory and uh, therapeutic. So diagnostic and therapeutic. If you give a dose, and and the key thing is to give the right dose, right? So you want to use a system, hint hint, that will give you the right dose of a benzo. And um, but seriously, you want you want to give the right dose. And if you're giving the right dose. Uh, it, it's very unlikely you're going to cause respiratory arrest and, uh, because it, we worry about that. And you should be thinking respiratory arrest. You should have your equipment out and be prepared anytime you're giving an agent uh, to a child that's altered, uh, that's going to reduce their respiratory status uh, and cause them uh, to be hypopnic. But um, yeah, what do you think? Peter? The other thing I would say to that is the 
Um, I'm a big fan of checking for airway reflexes, right? Because I know that if someone is, if someone's seizing, generalized seizure, they, they will accept an OPA all day long. Um, and then as soon as they start to come back around, that OPA, they just kind of self spit it out. And that's my marker to say, aha, you're coming out of it. So if you have a, a quick way as you're assessing the patient, you know, you're looking at the eyes, you're looking at the, at the tone, uh, you're looking at vital signs. I would also check the airway and, and you know, check to see if this kid's got a gag reflex. Because for me, that says to me, hey, you know what, if this kid starts to throw up, he's not going to protect his own airway. And it kind of gives me the, a, a deeper understanding of how sick this kid really is in front of me right now. Okay. And I would say uh, to, the, to the person's original question and point, I don't, um, I forgot who that was, sorry, but the, the, the first dose, the first dose of Ativan or Versed is unlikely to produce significant respiratory depression, right? You need to get the seizure stopped. If in doubt, I would give it. And this could be seizure from a traumatic injury, right? Or something else, but we still need to stop it or a drug. We still need to try to stop it. So if all signs are pointing toward a seizure, early treatment with intranasal, rectal, IM, IV, benzo is probably going to be the first choice. Uh, I didn't bring so we'll have to bust into the kit. Get it open. And I don't know where you guys prefer. How much does he weigh, Mom? Um, oh, the video this video was actually shot, shot about 10 years ago. So um, but and I say that for a very particular reason. Uh, paramedics are uh, moving towards IV first here. Is that the right choice uh, in a 19 month old who's potentially actively seizing in this case scenario? Do you go intranasal? Uh, do you go uh, IM? Uh, what? Daniel says intranasal. Uh, that's great. Think, uh, Peter, did we have intranasal 10 years ago in the field? In the field, surely not. Um, actually, there, there are some, some, some people who may have had it. I think I heard Joseph there. Um, I got into EMS in 2010, which is right around the time we started doing intranasal. So I think yeah, we did have that. I'm getting old. Okay. But to David's point, there is great literature and best practice in both adult and pediatrics with respect to route. And IV, if you look at the guidelines today, is not even included. Like they don't even want you to even think of IV. Um, obviously people know the Rampart trial, which was 10 milligrams IM um, midazolam, and they compared that to IV lorazepam, but IM dosing, and now certainly IN dosing uh, of midazolam is the go-to uh, if you look at the newest literature, the newest recommendations. Yep. This is, this is, by the way, about a 15 or 20 minute case. So we, we, we will definitely not have time. As I predicted, we're already two minutes and 30 seconds into the case and we're halfway through our time here. So I do wanna fast forward a little bit, but before I fast forward uh, to the case and give you an update, but I wanna take you to a very particular important moment in this case's evolution. Um, David, can I ask one question? What if the mom pulls out a rectal diastat out of her bag and says, the doctors gave us this last time? Great question. Would you use that? Or would you go to drawing up your own meds, preparing the intranasal 
solution, all that, trying to find the atomizer, all those things you got to do, or would you just give the patient's own diastat, Peter? I'll, yeah, I'll answer that as the EMS medical director. Um, that definitely we should use our own med in this particular case okay. because midazolam is a fast on, fast off drug. So from the benzos, all the benzos, it is the quickest onset, and is it, but it's also the quickest offset, which means that you may have to give it again. Whereas in the emergency, whereas the Valium is longer. Yep. Valium yep. is longer. And it's now there are drugs like if you have a kid who's got, you know, uh, adrenal insufficiency. And you get there and you don't carry a steroid, well, you better believe they have Solucortep and you better use their drug. So there are instances where we absolutely use their medication. But in this particular case, I would prefer that we use our medication at our dose. Good point. You mentioned Solucortep. Again, for those that you're joining, welcome to our series. I think a paramedic saved a kid's life the other day. I saw a kid with status and they gave a kid uh, Solumedrol. This is the sick, one of the sickest kids with status teenager I've ever seen. And uh, cheers to everyone who's on and joining, celebrating you all today for all the great work that you do as frontline healthcare workers. But I want to get into the vitals. You know, I, uh, I, I, I mentioned this during our last podcast that when I was a, you know, a young buck pediatrician, uh, I, I wasn't paying a, a lot of attention to vital signs and I pay attention to vital signs with every single kid, I'm trying to correlate uh, what's going on with the child and what's going on with the vital signs. So let's take a look. Uh, at this point, a couple minutes in, we know that the, the kid has a, has, a, has a fever, 101 Fahrenheit, 38.3 centigrade. Uh, the blood pressure is 80 over 66, heart rate's 129, uh, respiratory rate's 30, and pulse ox is 83%. And like I do with teaching, the question to the group here today is which one or two of these vital signs are you most concerned about? And do they make sense? Because if they don't make sense, you need to repeat them and you want to trend them. So which of these vital signs are you concerned about? And do, do these vital signs make sense? David, uh, is that 90, is that 83 on the non-rebreather someone asked or is that pre? Room air. RA, room air. So someone is saying heart rate. I'm seeing pulse ox. Um, pulse ox and temperature. Yeah, I mean, temperature typically is not a massively concerning vital sign, but temperature, as you may be alluding to, might be affecting the heart rate and perhaps the respiratory rate. Uh, Mark, uh, Dr. Peel had mentioned tachycardia associated with seizure, do you see tachypnea with seizure? Because this sure. child, we, we, we use standardized systems to decide what the right range of vital signs are for a 19 month old. Because a 19 month old normative range of vital signs is different than a one month old. It's different than a 19 year old. So when, when I'm working, uh, I, I carry a card and that card for me has uh, vital signs in normative ranges based upon toddler. Um, but 30 is a bit high in this case. Uh, Mark, Peter, do you, do you all see? I'm gonna give you something that's not evidence-based, but I have trouble remembering, remembering respiratory rates. So I have the 10, 20, 30 rule. So an adult, average breaths around 10 to 12. School-age kid, 20, a baby 30. So if they're over that for their, for their general age category, I'm saying that's tachypnea. So for me, this kid is tachypnic. Uh, 
at 30, toddler school age over 20. And David, I, you and I will probably spar a little bit on this, but I'm still going to say heart rate's the most important vital sign of all. And it could be multiple things. It could be shock. It could be fever. It could be seizures. It could be sepsis. It could be all of them. We don't know, but I still am bothered by the 130 heart rate. The sparring, the sparring for me would be if this child had a good waveform and, and was really 83%, and a number of you all said, you know. Totally, yeah, totally. That would be a vital sign I would want to act on right away and put this Absolutely. on oxygen, probably a non-rebreather. I will say, though, that how many times have you been, have you seen a child who's having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, and they, they, it's impossible for them to have a normal respiratory rate, right? Yep. Because it's, it's a very choppy, uh, uh, you know, it's very choppy at best. And so even if you can count a rate, they're, they're surely not getting in, you know, they're not inhaling and exhaling appropriately. And so what I would always love to see here is a vital sign that I really push all of us in EMS and in the hospital to use, which is the end title. Uh, there you go, Capno. There you go, Stephen Wilcox. There you go. So that, that is a, a great additional vital sign to have here that will probably prove that this child is hypopnic, as David uh, accurately said earlier, and that respiratory rate may not even be a great value at this point in time because of the fact that he's, you know, maybe he was actively seizing at the time. All right. So team, we are 1038 uh, at Pacific Standard Time. We've got 22, 22 more minutes. I want to take you all to a different part of the case. So uh, they did attempt an IV uh, and they were unable to give an IV. They actually gave IM Versed, uh, which was a great move in my opinion. And now they are uh, in the rig. So we're about 10, 12 minutes into this resuscitation and they've decided to try uh, an IO uh, using the easy IO method. So I'm gonna full screen this. This is gonna, uh, just just take a look at this uh, part and let me let me full screen the video. David, did the SATs get better with the non-breather, uh, by the way? Okay, so we're getting ready to do. Sats, we're hundred percent on the non-rebreather. By the way, I also want to honor EMS folks, uh, the small space that you operate in in a rig. I just like, I get the luxury of working in an emergency department. So kudos again, uh, again, an honor to the work that you all do. So an alcohol iodine. All right, so I'm just going to throw it out there. There may be some controversy here. Uh, there's the pink one and the blue one. If you've used an IOs, there's the pink one and the blue one, and they uh, the pink one, which is for you know younger children. And, and so I throw it out to the audience. Uh, I'm seeing blue. So Donna, awesome. Blue exclamation point. And so I'm seeing blue. Uh, Peter, Mark, uh, when do you use the pink one? Um, so first of all, let's talk about the packaging because the packaging has been wrong on these things for quite a long time. When you look at the packaging, 
it says three to 39 kilograms. Um, and I just think that- For the pink one. Right, well, it, it, sa it says it, and they may have changed it since the last time I've seen it, but the weight on the back of those packages are completely incorrect. And we shouldn't be using weight at all when we use it. A good rule of thumb is that when the kid's an infant, um, you know, a smaller infant, I would use pink, uh, but for everybody else, I would use blue. And so there's very few times that people should be using the pink. And we'll talk about afterwards, the location of the femoral, uh, of, oops, I gave it away, of the IO. Um, and then we'll talk more about the, how to size it in a little bit. But I would love to hear why Donna is, uh, Donna, would you mind speaking and saying, why do you have blue and exclamation points? Let's unmute your microphone. Four exclamation points, by the way. So she, she just feels passionate. Donna is not shy. Go, Donna. Oh. Well, her last name is Speaks. Come on. <laughs> she is an outstanding educator uh, from the Northern Virginia area. Awesome. Well, uh, no, she doesn't have a mic. She doesn't have a mic. She says pink is not older than a neonate typically. So, Peter, she agrees with you. Good job, right. Donna. Let's, pl let's keep playing. Uh, Thank you. And the clip lower. Mom's up in the front seat. We're going to work here for a little bit. Okay. Wait, before we even get to the IO, um, what do you think about this child's tone again? And what is the state of this child? We're now 10, 12 minutes. We're always reassessing children, either formally through taking vital signs or informally. Uh, we're focused on a procedure, but you can't take your eyes off the prize, which is the child. And uh, in emergency departments now, when we sedate kids, you're not allowed to sedate and do a procedure at the same time. That's a no-no. You're either focused on the procedure or you're focusing on, on the vital signs and the airway of a child when you're sedating them. This child's sedated. They, this child's already gotten a dose of an IM benzo. What is the state of this child? I need to play this again. It's really, really important. That's my follow-up dose for, for said. I'm going to another. Mark, Peter, anyone? What, what do you? He, well, yes, Klaus, hecked, awesome. You said obtunded. Kid's still obtunded. The kid is still altered. How about the tone? I mean, just in the interest of time, he's got clenched fists. I think he's still having a seizure, right? Still so he seizure. hasn't broken, probably. Um, and that's what and, and that's what this uh, the the medic just alluded to. He's already talking yeah. about in his mind. So it's rigid. Knows. Yep. So yeah. now we're 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes in, still altered, and still having a seizure. Do one milligram. One, Confirmation 21 is that we should shoot. Nope. Jesse, let's go. I got a spot right there. Go ahead, kiddo. Oh, 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 okay, a couple, qu let's just stop there for a second. Um, because there's a lot of teaching points here. Um, first uh, and foremost, again, 
not taking your eye off the prize and looking at the child, how did the child respond to this, uh, putting in the IO? Is this a normal response to putting a needle through the bone and the skin? No, absolutely. Well, David, David said perfectly, P on the AFPU, perfect. Right, well, P for painful, for pain. <laughs> how about, how about, about procedure-wise? Any comments, Peter, Mark, in terms of how they yeah. how they position the child, their position? Positioning is important, obviously, uh, as as part of this. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a little anti here, and I'm gonna challenge everybody for what what are we putting in the IO for? Question. Right. So I'm I'm gonna challenge everyone to think of this kid's having a seizure. Airway, 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 right? Obviously, the, we already have a set of vital signs. What is going to happen once we put this IO in that we can't do without the IO at this point in time, right? And so uh, that, that, that's really the question I have here. Listen, I love, I love IOs and I love the concept of the IO, but I want to make sure that people understand that a, a seizure um, typically in a, in a child um, if, if the kid was hypotensive, really tachycardic and so forth, maybe you can convince me that you're doing it for fluids, but um, it's not really meant, in my opinion, it's not really the, the first thing I would focus on on seizure yeah. patients. Peter, I did want to comment. I, I left this out before, but the, the systolic of 80 in this kid is a little, raised my eyebrow just a little bit. While it's not classically hypotensive, often kids, when they start seizing are hypertensive. And so he's, I think he's heading the wrong way. So you could make well, the argument. They think they're giving more benzos. They're going to need to give fluid. He's going to get hypotensive, all that, right? I, 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 would, I would agree with you. But what, what I would like to do here is it would just focus on the up the airway. I would want to see this kid has a, a, a shoulder roll, an OPA, the non was just, re, was just removed, correct, exactly. Um, and, and so now we're here we are doing something for a kid that more than likely um, may not even be used for what it's in, in, what they're thinking it's going to be used for. So that's just my comment. I, I, I agree with you that a, the, the SVP uh, of 80 is on the lower end. And a quick tip, you see how many times the non-rebreather non has come off? So in a weight kid, they hate it, they're going to pull it off. In this kid, all the movement keeps causing it to fall off. So, so tegoderming or taping on a cannula, even if you don't have a humidified high-flow setup, just putting on the cannula, I think, may... What do you guys think? Maybe preferable in this situation. So we keep some oxygen flowing, even at like 10 liters. Yeah. Can I make a quick comment? And this is Rob again. Hey, Rob. Please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah just to add, add on to what Dr. Antivy um, mentioned, as an educator, I always try to push that, you know, don't, don't lose focus. Don't become distracted. So the pediatric patients, we all know is what, whatever the etiology is, respiratory, 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 airway. And with pediatric seizures, correct me if I'm wrong, it is the oxygen level and the respirations and the airway status that is the focus. So I agree a thousand percent with Dr. Antevi is that they're kind of losing focus on what's important here. And regardless of what the etiology is, you always need to maintain the airway, make sure the chest is rising and not lose, you know, not be distracted. So, and and, and Rob, Rob, I'm I'm going to add on one thing. I appreciate what you said. In the emergency department, what happens is this: kids start seizing. People walk in the room, they see it, and they run out to the Pixis to go get the benzo. No, 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 no. It's lay the kid flat, shoulder roll, jaw thrust, head tilt, chin lift, oxygen, 
talk to the mom and then and then someone can get the, the benzo. But like if you're the first person in the room, it's you you're you're at the head of the bed and you're managing this kid's airway. David, back to you. Let's uh, roll the tape. I want to get through some of this. And we are seeing that a lot in these comments, the airway priority. We're trying. It doesn't feel stable. It doesn't. Not like I've always had in the past. I mean, it flushes. Okay, so this brings up, I mean, we could spend three hours talking about this case, literally, um, but I want to get through it. How do you know it's in? How do you test it's in? Uh, there's some controversy about whether you withdraw first to see if you can pull out any, any marrow. Um, uh, and in some ERs, you can use that for a quick glucose. Um, going to throw it over to Mark and, and Peter uh, and anyone Let, else. Let's hear from uh, Travis and Steven are not happy with the placement. Do you guys want to Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just seems it doesn't seem like it's in the flat part of the tibia, almost like it's too far north. It's hard to tell Lateral. from the video. Yeah. Yeah, it's too yeah, far I agree with you. So that might be yeah. a problem. I would agree. And you know, if it's really difficult or if it is difficult to lo locate the plateau, um, there's you know, we obviously consider a distal femur placement as well. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I, what I want to mention is the following is that when you're, when you're placing the IO needle, the first thing you do is you take the needle, you can have it on the gun and you go and you find the bone. You just, you rest it there. And then, and then you look, right. You look for that hashtag. Um, and so in other words, it's not that you go, as soon as you touch the skin, you're drilling it. You have to go stop, feel the bone, make sure you're in the right place and then look for the hashtag and then drill. But I do agree that this is lat. It looks a little lateral. Again, we're playing Monday morning quarterback, and we should never yep. be doing that. But that's just my comment there. Two comments: the fact that he's that he cares and that he's crying makes me want think the seizure has stopped. So that's in some ways it's a diagnostic test. So a generalized tonic-clonic seizure will not have this type of alert a uh, uh, responsiveness. I agree with the, with the more lateral placement, the flat basically a finger breadth below the tibial tuberosity. And I know it's hard to find sometimes in a little one like this and then a centimeter medial and you'll usually be on the flat spot. And then Peter, um, I think we should also address the femoral approach and how that's best done. Yeah. I want to get yeah, to I, that. Before, go ahead, David. Yep. That, I do want to ask this very, very important question because this is where people who've not done it enough get concerned is how do you know it's in? How do you assess ah. it's in over Time. You're giving medications, you're potentially giving fluids. Uh, how, how do you know that you're in the right space? And are you allowed to so, withdraw, uh, withdraw? So, so, so for, first I would say that there's, there's a feel to it, right? Uh, the older the kid is, the easier the feel would be. Like if you're in a, if you're in a neonate, the, the bone is almost kind of buttery. So it's hard to feel the pop. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think, I think that's what you're really trying to look for first and foremost. Um, when you're, in the, when you're going through the tibia in little kids, that bone is so thin and oftentimes it's missed. And, there, and there's data that we'll look at um, in, in a study that was done recently. Um, and I actually, have, I actually have some of the data points up in front of me and David showing the landmarks here that Mark just talked about. But for the tibia, and this is the, this is the study right here in September, 2019. And the data showed that in kids under a year, 47% of IO needles are malpositioned. 
In kids over a year, which this kid qualifies for, 39% of the needles are malpositioned. So it's a, it's a tough location. So if we go back to the image and we think about, hey, what about the femur, the distal femur? So what, what I would say is, is that we have wholesale moved to the distal femur, and I think it's coming up on another slide or two, David, but only in the cardiac arrest patient because we, we recognize that the, there, there you go, that if you, if you feel your patella and you go above your patella, you then go into the divot, you'll feel like a little divot in your knee that's about a centimeter up and then go a centimeter medially. And you cannot miss that spot because there's no growth plate there. It is really wide, it's really big, it's really thick. So when you come in there, you will have a hard time pulling the needle out. So as, as long as you feel that pop, David, in my opinion, you know you're in. But we, we do still advise to let, try to pull back and see if you get something back. But then if you don't, you inevitably end up taking a saline flush and just pushing through, seeing if it's on the other side, right? So uh, it, you're more than likely to get um, the needle in the wrong position on the calf. So you want to feel for um, any fluid buildup in there. But that almost never will happen in the femur. But do not use it for the conscious patient. Uh, because it hurts that needle spinning the plastic piece, the the blue in this case or the yellow in older older people, will will hurt them so much that now you have a kid who's screaming their head off while you're trying to help them. So we have yeah. only allowed distal femur for the cardiac arrest patient. But I want to ask is is just to clarify that first bullet. Is it the first site you go to in a cardiac arrest, or it's yes? Only, you you so oh, yeah. you, you actually go central femur before proximal tibia we've we've eliminated we've eliminated proximal tibia altogether for cardiac arrest 100 do, do you want to explain why uh, do you want to explain yeah. why yeah so i mean I, I think a lot of people including us who received the patients in the er the tibial the proximal tibial io is almost always problematic either it doesn't work by the time it gets there or it falls out and you can see in this video that it happened and so that's number one number two you have to try to um, kind of uh, make sure that needle doesn't come out. Well, when you use the distal femur, you can't get it out, even if you try. That's how, that's how much it sticks in there. And then the flow rates are much better. So for, there are many reasons why the distal femur is really the best place for it. And we've actually worked with Lairdall to make, uh, uh, to actually change their mannequins to include a distal femur site, which is what we think should, people should be using first and foremost for cardiac arrest. And, right. and, and some people Peter, say a couple for people. Arrest, yeah, there are people using it for adults, but it's hard to get through that much tissue. You have to use the yellow, the 40, 45, um, and to get it all the way through the tissue. San Antonio EMS, the San Antonio Fire Department, will actually do a cut down of the skin to actually get that distal femur IO in, believe it or not. So the answer is yes, Robert. And I just want to pay attention to time. We've got just another four to five minutes left. Um, I'm gonna open it up to the uh, audience. If you wanna open up your mic, if you have any questions or uh, comments uh, either about this case or any teaching points you wanna make, many of you are EMS educators uh, and or feedback around uh, this experience because we wanna be bringing this to you on a, on a cadence regular basis. So uh, oh, any open mic thoughts, comments? Oh, uh, what is oh go ahead. 
No, I was going to say, this is, this is Rob. Just remember, guys, if you're on Twitter, please follow us at uh, Real Emergency, and uh, we'll uh, keep the buzz going there. And don't forget, after the show is over, you can then watch it back and uh, take in everything that everyone said. So uh, uh, we're live tweeting right now, so do join in. Thank you. Travis, go ahead. I just wondered about the outcome. Uh, the, the child actually stopped seizing and route to the hospital. We don't we don't have a specific outcome in hospital, but uh, the child became much more alert. Uh, the, the medics uh, ultimately realized that that IO did not work. I think it was probably a combination of things, uh, perhaps anatomic site, uh, perhaps using the small needle. Uh, they went to a larger needle on the contralateral uh, tibia. They got it. They gave another dose of uh, Versed. Uh, the child stopped seizing. Uh, vital signs uh, uh, improved and route. It was about a 35 minute uh, transport time because they're in a rural environment. Kudos to you all who work in, in rural areas because it's freaking challenging. I worked as a pediatrician four hours from a medical center. So I, I was with kids who were sick and know, knowing what that's like, I appreciate all that you do. Uh, and, um, and got to the hospital alive, uh, breathing, and uh, clearly not seizing and acting a, a bit more appropriate. So I think I wanted to go through a couple teaching points and, and wrap this up. Uh, one is uh, we, we talked about that initial anxiety in the first few seconds, undress, uncover the patient as part of that initial assessment. It, it seems obvious, but, but uh, I, many, many folks don't do that and it's really important. I think that we talked about the IO uh, in depth and um, uh, consider the blue tip for children greater than a month, month of age. Um, th this, is, this moves into not a simple febrile seizure because uh, the child had a fever and the child had a prolonged seizure. And you start thinking about what we call complex febrile seizures. And, and at, the longer the patient is, is actively seizing and not returning to baseline uh, mental status, you worry about uh, status epilepticus, which is obviously a, a significant medical emergency. Uh, and you want to continue to plan your assessment and reassessment of the child uh, if they're in status as you continue to go along. I, I, I cannot tell you the importance of reassessment and, and reassessing those vital signs, especially if they're initially abnormal. Uh, and we spent a lot of time today uh, talking about the challenges, using real, a real patient case, uh, figuring out uh, whether this is a seizure uh, versus uh, a, a postictal state. Uh, I, I just want to, I, I want to say I'm honored. I'm honored to be here today. And uh, frankly, I'm honored to be presenting this with um, Prodigy, uh, thank you all, uh, James et al, for all the great work uh, that you all do to uh, teach and, and bring, bring this live to us. This is an amazing partnership amongst uh, doctors, nurses, and paramedics to bring uh, this work to you. And I also really want to thank Mark and Peter. You guys are just amazing colleagues and amazing educators. I've learned things from you today. And uh, please like us uh, on Facebook and uh, we, we hope to offer more of these sessions. I'm gonna turn it over to Peter and Mark for any uh, final comments or teaching. Questions. David, there's been about 10 questions on whether they ever checked a glucose. Do you know if that ever happened? They did, it was 142. All right, great, thank you. And then any other thoughts on just the airway and the oxygen management, which we something we all identified as uh, maybe worthy of improvement. What do you think, Peter? 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it's um, I'm laying, laying the clip, kid flat. I have a shoulder roll. I'm maneuvering the airway with my hands and trying an OPA, definitely having the non-rebreather or nasal cannula on board. Um, and I'm, th that's my number one, two, and three priority in this particular yep. case as we're working through the rest of the case. And um, before we go, and before I hand it over to you, Mark, I, I want to echo, uh, David, you're an amazing educator. I, I loved kind of coming down this trip with you on this case that was amazing. Even on a quote unquote simple case, we all learned so much from each other. And, and also I wanna thank all the people out there who are like Hillary said in the beginning, if you're the point person or if you in some way, shape or form are making a difference in your community for pediatrics like Morgan Skaggs from Kentucky, thank you guys for what you do. We're here with you, we're here for you. Let's all do this together. And those are my final comments and Mark, I'll throw it over to you. I wish, I wish we had another hour to uh, keep talking about it because there's so much more to learn here. But thanks for, thanks for uh, inviting me and it's been a privilege. All right, well, have a great day, everyone. Happy hey, David, day. let's put the, you got the QR code up for the CEs, the last slide oh, yeah. there. Great, hey guys, scan your, uh, scan your QR code for CEs from Prodigy. Um, this will be available on Prodigy EMS as well as uh, YouTube. Um, but if you want, uh, if you want CEs, you can get them from here. Hey, I need to do a shout out to Guilford County EMS. The Paramedic Academy is watching this webinar live with us today. So, all of the rest right. of you awesome educators, this is such a great idea to show your students. Uh, you don't have to write a lesson plan uh, for that hour. You can just, uh, you can just show your students. Uh, a webinar like this, and of course, since it's recorded, um, you can watch it later, um, stop it and start it as much as you want, fast forward, you know, past the parts that you don't like, uh, so on and so forth. So thanks to Guilford County. Uh, thanks everyone for joining and um, we'll see hey, you Hillary. next time. Wait, wait, before we end, I know David wanted to stop exactly at two o'clock and he did, he did. But if there is anyone out there who's in the, you know, who wants to talk about pediatrics, open your mic and we want to hear from you. I'm not letting this thing end before we hear from some people. So, hey, Dr. Hey, Hey, guys. Question for you. Hey, Doc. Um, I don't yeah, know go ahead. You hear me. Uh, yeah. Derek Hopkins, my name. I'm a paramedic um, instructor. Uh, I just want to say thank you for everything that you do. Um, I'm making uh, pediatric medicine so, so, um, so simple. Uh, it was with that simplicity that I saved a two-year-old that was in a um, cardiac arrest about two years ago um, by using the likes of the hand-heavy uh, method. Um, and when I'm teaching yeah. PALS, um, I'm a PALS instructor, and it's nearly the first thing that I always teach. So I just want to say thank you for everything that you do. Well, well listen, uh, none of us take credit because it takes people like you to actually do the hard work. So you know, we, we, we are just kind of there to, to show the way, but you guys do the hard work. So you, you take a hundred percent of that credit. And I am so happy that you're, you're out there on the streets, Derek. Thank you for that. Thank you, sir. Great case. Thank you all for presenting. That was great. Awesome. I'm glad, I'm glad you learned something. I hope, I hope everyone learned something today. I, I learned many things. I, every time I talk with Peter and Mark and Hillary, I, I learned something. Also, nice. somebody had a, Somebody had a question about ketamine and ongoing seizures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we actually just, uh, we have an abstract out where we have ketamine intramuscular or IV for, uh, this is remember, refractory status epilepticus or RSE, meaning that you've, you've exhausted everything you can from the benzo perspective and the patient's still seizing. 
In the adult population, seizures that don't stop are deadly. Um, I would say less so in the pediatric population, but they're still bad. So the longer someone seizes, the higher their morbidity and then the higher their mortality. And so the, the only other drug that I know EMS carries, many EMS systems carry is ketamine. And it's been reported in the literature for many years. Our, our data was the first EMS study where 22 out of the 23 patients who got ketamine stopped seizing. Um, and so it's one, one milligram per kilogram IV or three milligrams per kilogram IM. And it is a wonderful medication. Go look at the research, consider adding it to your protocols. And uh, it's something that I think you know, would be very beneficial to your patients.